Creative Babble. Before we begin, I just want to warn you that today's topic may be a little too strong for some listeners. It describes a shooting that killed two people. And now, while this story is not technically about a mass shooting, it has every characteristic of one. Just so you know, I started working on this story before the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. And I hesitated releasing this episode. At first, I just wanted to pull it. Then I thought, maybe I'll delay the release. But you know what? There's never an appropriate time to talk about this. If I release it in a few months, there's just going to be another shooting. And then another one. Unfortunately, this is our new reality. In this episode, we're going to talk about what you and I could do as individuals to spot the next mass murderer. We're going to dive deep into the psychology of a killer and talk about the characteristics some of them have in common. One thing we're not going to talk about is politics. There are plenty of other outlets having this debate. All right, so let's get started. This is The Reporter. Covering your hometown from five newsrooms across the region, this is WDBJ7. It was early in the morning on August 26, 2015 in Roanoke, Virginia. I can just imagine the television sets playing in the background at some coffee shop, a husband and wife watching the morning news while getting ready for work and packing lunch for the kids, and the row of treadmills at the gym all playing the same channel, WDBJ's morning show. And I'm Melissa Gayona. Thank you for joining us. According to Nielsen, a ratings company, 37,000 people are tuning in to WDBJ's morning program in the Roanoke-Lynchburg, Virginia market. It's the most watched local news program in town. It's now approaching 6.45 a.m. The producer back at the station buzzes the TV reporter's ear. Allison Parker and her photojournalist, Adam Ward, are doing a live remote shoot at the Bridgewater Plaza on Smith Mountain Lake near Roanoke. Adam, the photographer, just finished setting up the live signal that goes back to the station. They're seconds away from going live on air. Right Which will be out of the open, just so you know. Stand by on 12. Three, two, one. Music, mic, cure. This morning, Allison is interviewing the executive director of the local Chamber of Commerce. The business community here has ever seen. I'm here with Vicki Gardner, the executive director of the Smith Mountain Lake Regional Chamber of Commerce. Everything was going as planned when, out of nowhere, a man walks up to them and he stands there silently for a few seconds. To provide a better experience, we're saying tourism. We want the people that come here to say that. Allison Parker turns and looks at him and notices that he's holding a gun in his hand. She screams and starts running. He fires the first shot, then another, and another. Adam Ward, the photojournalist, falls to the ground. Back at the station, the show's producers cut to the anchor back on set. Okay, not sure what happened there. We will just let you know. The live shot is still up and running at the station. Okay, not sure what they can hear the screaming and they hear more shots, six shots total. Then, silence. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend Radio. 
Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. To provide a better experience, we're saying tourism. We want the people that come here to say that was... Back at the station, the editors keep replaying the tape over and over again, hoping they could spot a clue. Then, they turn to the next monitor and watch the live shot that's still on. Remember, no one is at the news truck to turn the live feed off. The people at home can't see what's going on, but the TV staff inside the control room can see everything in real time. They keep staring at the screen, hoping that Adam's lifeless arm will move. The studio crew was in denial. At first they thought maybe the shots they heard was a car backfiring. Maybe Allison got away. Either way, something terrible happened. So they call the police. Minutes later, when police arrive at the scene, they hear the officers approaching the camera. They get the confirmation they did not want to hear. Three down, two fatal. By the time police got there, the shooter had already left the scene. Who would commit such a crime? Especially on live television. It had to be planned. I mean, whoever did this knew exactly where the live shot was going to be. If you watch the video frame by frame, which I highly recommend you don't, you can see the killer pointing the gun down at the camera. The image is dark and blurry, so it's hard to make out the details of his face. All I could tell is that he appears to be an African-American man wearing dark pants and a navy blue button-down shirt. The chief photojournalist back at the station looked at the blurry image. He had no doubt about who he was looking at. He says the gunman is Bryce Williams. Bryce Williams was a reporter who was fired from the same TV station more than two and a half years earlier. They couldn't believe it. Why would he do this? And why now? If the killer is really Bryce Williams and he's out to get revenge on his former co-workers, well, who is he going to go after next? Police call one of the reporters who he had an encounter with during his time at the station. They asked her if she was safe and alerted her that Bryce Williams was still at large. I woke up that morning sick to my stomach after I heard the news. And you probably remember it too. How could somebody do this? Especially live on television. It just seems like these mass murderers just want to outdo one another. Every time it just gets bigger and more outrageous. I'm just sick of the carnage. Whoever did this is a monster. When these types of killings happen, we often ask ourselves, how did anyone miss the signs? How did this killer get this far undetected? I would have seen the signs, right? I mean, somebody would have seen the signs. The reason why I'm speaking out about these particular murders is because I feel helpless. I should have seen the signs. I didn't see the signs because the killer was someone I worked with every single day. And honestly, I never saw it coming. A few hours after the news broke, the killer's name was revealed. And when I heard his name, his real name, my whole body went limp. Bryce Williams' real name is Vester Flanagan. 
Bryce Williams was just a pseudonym he used on air after I worked with him. I only knew him as Vester Flanagan. That's why when I heard the news, I didn't know who it was. Vester and I worked together at WNCT, a CBS affiliate in Greenville, North Carolina. Vester was the reporter, and I was his photojournalist. Every morning, Vester and I would just hop in a CBS-branded truck, and we would chase down news stories. A lot of people don't realize this, but photojournalists and reporters are really, really close. We spend every minute together interviewing people, chasing politicians, sitting in boring city council meetings, and braving bad weather like snowstorms and hurricanes. And even at the end of the day, when the microphone is turned off and the camera is put away, we usually go to the nearest watering hole to forget the day and do it all over again tomorrow. Most photojournalists and reporters would describe themselves as family. Hell, I've known several reporters and photographers who have had affairs and even some who've gotten married. I mean, things happen when you work so closely together. That's why I'm so shocked that I worked next to this guy for months and months and never saw it coming. If I didn't see the signs, then who the hell could? The moment I found out that it was Vester Flanagan and not Bryce Williams, all I could think about was, what did you do, Vester? What did you do? I called my old news director, Lee Eldridge, and asked him how he learned about the shooting. Lee was working in Salt Lake City when he heard the news. He said he was in his office when one of his producers said... Are you following the shooting? I... You know, I said, of course. I said, I'm really busy. I don't, you know, and I didn't, we didn't have a name at that point. She said, Lee, it's Vester. And I was just in such shock when she said it. And as I'm walking past one of the producer's pods in our studio, uh, they, they told me, we have the footage. We have the, we have the video that, of, of the killer. And I, so I, I stop and I look at it. And it just hit me like a, you know, like I just got slammed by a, a truck. I had a couple altercations with him, nothing very serious, but I mean, looking back now at what occurred, you know, it is scary because, um, you know, you were his boss, you know, you hired him, but you, you know, you were having troubles with him. I mean, I could, I could totally see if you didn't renew his contract or if you tried to fire him or if I got into an argument with him. I mean, that could have been us. You know, I never, I didn't have concern of Vester, you know, retaliating or seeking revenge if we were to discipline him, which we did, at, you know, at some point, uh, you know, with regards to write-ups, et cetera. Um, but we didn't, I, I never had that concern. I've never had that concern because back then I didn't even see him having the potential Oh my God, the guy I recruited gave a job to when he was out of a contract. The guy I tried to help, the guy I tried to develop his skills, the guy I tried to reach who was pretty defensive and uh, ended up doing this, this unbelievable act. And so there was a sense for me at that very moment that somehow I had a little bit of responsibility in it because I didn't get through to him. And obviously that's crazy way to think yeah. that's the way i thought at that moment i have to admit i too feel guilty for not seeing any of the signs and so do a lot of the people that we worked with at the time 
If only I took the time to get to know him better, maybe I could have done something. I guess, but looking back now, there were some signs that things weren't right. So I saw some red flags because a few, I don't know, four to six months into the job, Vester needed help on something, and I went over to his apartment, and I found his whole place to be barren, and he had no furniture, and I thought this was kind of odd because he had the previous job in Tallahassee, Florida, and I thought he would have just moved all his stuff there. But he basically came up there with everything he owned in the car, and then I go over to his place to visit, see how he's settling in, and there's literally no furniture. So I ended up giving the guy, I was planning to buy some new living room furniture and bedroom furniture, and I basically gave this guy my old furniture for nothing just so he had something to sleep on. And I remember the case um, when it happened. This is David. Yeah, I'm a licensed professional counselor. My background is working as a therapist in a maximum security facility. A lot of the hard cases were things that came across my desk. And one of the things that you would notice is that before one of your clients was going to act out, become physically assaultive, you'd hear them start to rehearse the grievances against them. So who was treating them unfairly, who was out for them, who was targeting them. And I think the reason that people do that is you can't assault somebody when you're knowingly unjustified. So you have to change the moral math so that you feel like you're doing what you're doing in self-defense. So it's not that you're punching somebody, you're counter-punching somebody. So I think that sense of grievance is really crucial. I remember working with Fester and he was, it was always everybody else's fault. It was never his fault, right? Like, but I've known people like that my whole life. Like I've known people that I've worked with that got fired from every job that they had and they never thought that it was their fault like it was something that they were doing you know like it was always like their boss or their co-workers had it in for them like the co-worker that i'm talking about right now uh, i would never suspect him of being a, a mass shooter or a killer or you know so like for me I, you know when i worked with bester and he was always blaming people like it was either a race issue or whatever you know he was homosexual not open to me at least but it was always like he, he was always kind of like a victim right that was like the only sign if you were to tell me what was the sign that that was the only sign i had so like what should people look out for when you know when they're dealing with uh, potential mass killers when somebody has a sense of grievance, like you said, you don't want to just go into your mind and be like, this person's probably going to kill people. There's a lot of people that have a sense of grievance who just don't become violent. The number one prediction of violence in the future is if somebody has violence in their background. It seems to be one of those bridges that if you cross once, you cross more than once. Uh, if I hear that somebody's been violent in their adult life in the past, I'm going to note that and I'm going to be really careful around that person. To be clear... David's not implying that everyone who has a sense of grievance and a violent past is going to commit a crime like this. These are just some common traits found in killers. What he's saying is, just note some of these behaviors. The fact that I worked with a killer like Vester is very rare, and he says that people like him sometimes can't be fixed. There's a dogma that no matter how broken you are, no matter how much you've been through, no matter how pathological you are, you can come back from it. And I think there's a lot of people who work really hard and do make gains, but those are people who are really honest with themselves and they understand that the work comes in inches, it doesn't come in feet, and they're in therapy and they're working really hard to change the things about them that they don't like and the changes come slow. So there is this dogma though that, you know, we're kind of obsessed with redemption. 
And I think that if you've heard that somebody is has been violent in the past, don't count on that redemption story that everything can be fixed. It turns out Vester did have a violent past. Court papers show that his mother was known for having violent outbursts when he was a child and threatened to kill her husband and her kids. The violence got so bad that Vester's father filed for divorce and had an emergency restraining order put on her. Vester's father claims that his wife threatened to shoot him in his sleep. She said this in front of an eight-year-old Vester. Of course, I didn't know any of this when I worked with him. I also had no idea that Vester had been fired prior to working together. During his time at the NBC station in Tallahassee, Florida, Vester accused co-workers of mocking his sexuality. He verbally assaulted station employees for questioning his reporting, and several of the photojournalists on staff refused to work with him. When they fired him, he sued the station for racial discrimination. Looking back now, after reports came out, after the incident, it turns out that the time period that we worked with Vester were actually like a good period in his life. If you look at, you know, his history in totality, I mean, that time period was actually an okay period for him. So in a way, we kind of got lucky. He had lost his job in Tallahassee. This is Lee Eldridge again, our old boss. I gave him an opportunity to recover his career. I think that time frame was a good time in his life because somebody, you know, we gave him an opportunity. Um to get back on his feet after the loss of the other job in Tallahassee. What did you see in him? And he had a he had a more mature look. He was a big, you know, big guy, great stature, decent looking on air. And, you know, in this day and age, it's still difficult to find really strong black male reporters and anchors. And it's not because they're not out there. It's so many more women that want to be reporters than men. And I wanted to build a very diverse team. Lee says that Vester had the it factor. But over time, he noticed his paranoia get the best of him. While covering stories, Vester would question everything. He couldn't tell facts from conspiracy theories. Lee Eldridge considered letting Vester go, but never got the chance. Lee took a job in New York, and then a new news director came in. When Vester's contract was up, the news director chose not to renew it. After Greenville, Vester fell off my radar. In fact, I didn't think much of him after that. He laid low for a while. It seems like things flared back up when he started working at WDBJ in Roanoke, Virginia. This was his last reporting gig. Less than a year after hiring him, WDBJ let him go just because of his erratic behavior. His colleagues say that they hid in a room while police escorted him out of the building. Sure, he was angry at the station for wronging him somehow, but he was also just mad at the world. My question is, what made him cross that line? So it's safer to be a human now than it's ever been. He's actually right. I looked this up. While it may seem that the world is getting worse over time, the data suggests that things aren't as bad as they were. The reason for that is that there's a rise of centralized government. So you have a third party that you can go to and say, hey, this person wronged me. 
And then when you David have says that we have laws and government that help people sort problems out. So when you have a problem with somebody, you just settle it in court. You don't shoot them at high noon. But if you believe that the courts or the police aren't going to serve your best interest, then you're more likely to become violent. And take matters into your own hands. After Vester shot and killed Allison Parker and Adam Ward on television, he fled the scene. Around 11 a.m. that morning, Vester sends out a tweet. It reads, I filmed the shooting. See Facebook. The Facebook post shows the shooting recorded from his point of view. The first video shows a hand pointing a gun at the news crew. In the second clip, the video shows Vester opening fire on Allison Parker. He later tweets again. Adam went to HR on me after working with me one time. Then, in another tweet, he claims that Allison made racist comments about him. About the same time, the ABC newsroom in New York receives a 23-page fax and a phone confession from Vester Flanagan. In his manifesto, Vester explains his motive. He says, Okay, the big question is why? Well, after I compiled well over 100 pages describing the hurt in my life, I asked myself, why not? Hell, I'm surprised I didn't do this before now. In the letter, he praises the Columbine and Virginia Tech shooters. He even confesses to killing his cats leading up to the murders. David explains that there's a reason for this. Do I have it in me? Low resting heart rate, seeking out thrills. Could have been a trial. Can I test myself to do this? Something that they genuinely enjoy. 15 minutes after Vester Flanagan sends out those tweets, police find his car on the side of the road in Northern Virginia. He shot himself in the head. Vester was pronounced dead when he arrived at the hospital. Both Allison Parker and Adam Ward died on the scene. Vicki Gardner, the executive director of the local Chamber of Commerce, was taken to the hospital and survived. Honestly, I'm still in shock that I work so closely with this guy. I mean, we spent hours together. I just can't help but think that that could have been me. I mean, at times, he was a kind guy. He always laughed at my stupid jokes, but other times he was just a jerk. I didn't make my distaste for him a secret. Before these senseless killings, I would have described the Vester Flanagan as vain and narcissistic. He wanted attention, and being a television reporter satisfied that demon. But I guess that wasn't enough. And when his dreams of becoming a network anchor faded, he needed a bigger stage. So he picked Allison Parker and Adam Ward as the stars of his last act. He knew they would be there live, and that was his sick moment to shine. I knew it wasn't just a disgruntled employee. He killed them on live television to get attention. I asked David, the counselor, if narcissism is a trait we should look out for. So what I would say is that most narcissists aren't actually violent, but most people who are violent have narcissistic tendencies. But he reminds me. It's not the psychopath that most people are really gonna have to worry about. I mean, if a psychopath is coming after you, good luck spotting it. I mean, if you're gonna prepare for a risk, uh, look for the person who has been violent in the past, 
who has an impulsive disposition, who has a sense of grievance, and who feels disconnected from the society in such a way that they don't think anybody will go to bat for them. And I think that kind of puts together a picture. But I think Lee Eldridge, my old boss, put it best. Maybe sometimes the best thing we could do is just be nice to each other. It's the least we could do. Thank you to Lee Eldridge for hopping on the phone and talking about this. It wasn't an easy conversation to have. You know, ever since this happened, those of us who work together just avoid the topic altogether. And thanks to Dave. Many of you might recognize Dave's voice from the Guilty podcast. And I want to take the time to remember the victims and the friends and family members of those involved in these senseless killings. It's easy to forget how many lives are rocked when things like this happen. This episode was written and produced by me and was edited and produced by TJ Cunihan from the Pints and Puzzle podcast. You know, I've never met TJ in person, but I can truly say that he is one of my closest friends. <laughs> we talk all the time on Twitter, and he's been so supportive of the show from day one. In fact, he's the guy behind the scenes that listens to all my rough cuts before you do. Every day we have conversations, and every day TJ influences the show and makes it better. So when I told TJ that I was going to work on this episode and how hard it was going to be for me to listen to all these sound bites over and over again, he said, send it over, I'll do it. And I really appreciate it. This was a tough one. Next time on Pretend Radio, we're going to talk to the wife of a former CEO of Wendy's. She's going to tell us how a famous quarterback came into her life and destroyed it. That's next time on Pretend Radio. Hello, my name is Kim and I'm the host of a new podcast in this new year called People Are Wild. Join me, your friendly neighborhood ER nurse, as I discuss medical marvels and topics with a splash of tales from the emergency department. Let's face it, our bodies are weird, so let's talk about all the wild things that they can do every week on a little thing I like to call Medutainment Mondays. That's medical entertainment smushed together, high-quality humor. That's what you have to look forward to every week. Find me on iTunes or your preferred podcast listening app. And remember, people, they're just wild creative babble